unfortunately, most of what you're going to pick up in your grocery store shelf, like canola oil, corn oil, vegetable oil, which is just kind of a empty bin where they pour in kind of the cheapest things and say it's vegetable oil. All those sorts of things are made in that industrial process. So things like hexane extraction, these are very highly industrialized, very complex, very artificial procedures that are done to make these types of oils. I'm Jane Z, and this is Farm to Future, the podcast all about eating better for the planet. In 1955, U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower had a heart attack. Now, remember a couple of years ago when Trump was out of office for a few days with COVID and everyone freaked out? Well, imagine POTUS being out for 10 days. That event pretty much put heart disease on the map. Prior to the 1920s, heart disease was not really a thing. And then all of a sudden, middle-aged men started having heart attacks. And by the late 1950s, heart disease became the number one public enemy. But what was causing these heart attacks? No one really knew. The leading hypothesis came from a very convincing scientist named Ansel Keys, who proposed that saturated fats were the problem. Saturated fats are typically the animal fats that are solid at room temperature. So meat, cheese, butter, and other animal products. It was believed that these fats contributed to LDL cholesterol, which increases risk for heart disease. Know that the latest science on cholesterol is more nuanced and that all of this has in fact been disproven. But at the time, there was no science yet. And off the cuff, the story seems to make sense. You eat fat, you get fat, you have a heart attack. The story was so believable that in 1961, the American Heart Association, which happened to receive funding from Procter & Gamble, the makers of Crisco, they issued their first dietary guidelines and recommended replacing saturated fats with polyunsaturated fats, aka vegetable oils. And I repeat, this was before any science was conducted. Zero evidence. But these guidelines took hold, and they basically took the world by storm. Starting in the 60s, seed oils started appearing everywhere. Grocery stores, restaurants, cafeterias all started switching to these oils. And later, that led to the low-fat diet. The link between saturated fats and heart disease has become one of the most rigorously studied subjects in nutrition. Yet no evidence has been found showing a correlation. In other words, we've been lied to for decades and decades by the government and by our doctors, telling us to avoid butter and lard and all these actually good fats that humans have been eating and thriving off of for millennia. So if you see incendious posts vilifying seed oils on social media, this is why. And I have to give all the credit to Nina Teicholz, who frankly spurred much of this revolution you're seeing today with her best-selling book, The Big Fat Surprise. That's where this little history lesson comes from. And if you want to learn more about the dark history of fat, go check out her work. Michaela Peterson also did a great interview with her that I'll link in the show notes. All that to preface today's interview with Chef Dr. Mike, where he shares some of his insider experience as a medical doctor and cardiologist. He actually wrote a book about this very subject and at the time got some backlash from his peers. We'll also go into some practical tips and answer all your questions, including what oils are safe to use at high temperatures, the latest science on cholesterol, and how much fat is too much. All of that coming up. If you're new here, welcome, welcome. Come chat with me, Jane Z, on Instagram at farm.to.future. All right, on to the show. Hello, Chef Dr. Mike. So glad to have you back and so soon. (laughs) Love it. Always love uh, hanging out with you, Jane. We've got a packed episode today and lots of listener questions. Let's start out with the hot topic, which is seed oils. I feel like if we had this conversation, say 20, 30 years ago, we'd be talking about low-fat diets and how to cut fat from your diets. Whereas The narrative's kind of spun the other way now where seed oils are getting demonized. And it sounds like for good reason. Well, first of all, your introduction was 100% spot on. So I went that route, you know, many decades ago. You know, you look at where we are in a point in time and we think we have the food answers. And then, you know, you look back maybe 10, 
20 years later and you're like, wow, how did we ever think that, you know, based on what we know now? So it's an evolving study, even though obviously human beings have been eating since there's been human beings. But so often people get stuck, you know, in a dogma of this is what it is and this is what I believe. And it's really an evolution. We also have to, you know, be open mentally, emotionally and spiritually to the new data and be willing to accept it. And unfortunately, and, you know, I will take a hit for my profession as far as physicians, a lot of physicians, you know, make their bones, make their reputation on, you know, cholesterol is bad, don't eat eggs, saturated fat, whatever it is. And then they can't evolve because they've got financial ties or prestige ties or those sorts of things. And that's not good. That's not good for the conversation. So I encourage everyone to keep an open mind. I mean, my my mind was changed. My viewpoint was changed decades ago through personal injury and trauma. And I had to say, wait, you know, what I'm telling people isn't what I want to do anymore because the data doesn't suggest that. And that's kind of why, uh, although I certainly have a lot of company th these days, for many, many years, decades ago, you know, I was sort of a pariah. I always tell uh, some of my good friends who were at very prestigious medical academic institutions when I wrote my first and second book, and I, I would send them copies and they'd review things for me. And I remember talking to a colleague of mine who was at Vanderbilt, great, prestigious place. And it's like, hey, you know, this is great that you loved it and you loved the data and you appreciated all the research went in. You know, can I get a little testimonial for you from the cover? And he's like, Mike, I'd love to, but that'd get me fired. So mm -hmm. no way. Um, I'm supporting you, you know, in spirit, brother, but no way am I, you know, saying any of the things that you're putting in this book because it's against the dogma of the time. Mm -hmm. Of course, now it's become more and more mainstream. So a long-winded way of saying, hey, for all the listeners out there, Keep an open mind because what you hear today as fact may become fiction tomorrow. Yeah. Wow. That must have been really tough to, you know, put your own work out there and then not have it be publicly received. I mean, do you want to say a little bit about the first books you published and maybe they just came like a little too early ahead of the curve? They were. For anybody who picks up a, a copy of the, uh, the Fallacy of the Calorie, for example, that's still in print and that was written, I think, a decade or so ago. You'll see me making predictions on things that now are, are commonplace and accepted. Mm. Uh, the cholesterol that you eat doesn't have any impact on what your blood cholesterol level was. You go to talk to a physician today and they'll say, well, of course, you know, we know that now. But back then it was don't eat too many eggs because eggs have so much cholesterol, about 290 milligrams on average per egg per day. And they wanted you to limit it at no more than 300 milligrams. And finally, right now, it's like, don't even worry about your daily cholesterol intake because it has no impact on what your blood lipid levels are. So, yeah, it, it was rough. And But, you know, it, when I look back, it was great because it was a defining time uh, where I had to make some hard choices personally. And those choices were do I sort of just go along with the mainstream and maybe get popular and, you know, get uh, on more talk shows and, you know, and be able to sell more things. But I'm talking about something that I don't really believe because that's not where my review and interrogation of the data had taken me. Or do you walk, you know, maybe a bit of a lonelier path? You know, as Robert Frost would say, the road less traveled. And I chose the road less traveled because at the end of the day, you know, you can't take the money with you, can't take the fame with you. To me, it's all about what kind of life have you lived? What kind of quality life have you lived? And particularly coming from my professional background, where the decisions I make isn't about whether somebody has an extra widget or not. It's a matter of life or death. It's a matter of their personal health. And I can't compromise on those on those values. I can't compromise on what I say. And I won't shut up, even if it, if it ends up costing, uh, which it really did in the short term, uh, actually the long term, because it's been about a decade or more. I was in parallel looking at ultra processed food as sort of the change that has caused a lot of the current health issues that we have about the same time that they were looking into that in uh, Brazil. Uh, Professor Montiero, Carlos Montiero and his group out of the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. I didn't actually come across their work probably until almost a decade later uh, because they had the same sort of pushback that, that I had received. Uh, but now that's really gaining momentum across the globe, not so much in the United States because of the food industry uh, at a lot of different levels. Some of that, I would say, is, as well, the medical industry as well, because uh, as we were talking about, they're sort of entrenched in a dogma. 
But the data, data is really becoming irrefutable so that you have countries like Brazil, like France, that are looking at it, accepting the data and moving forward with it. And when certain momentum, a certain mass accrues and people are starting to move, uh, you know, then that becomes a critical mass. And th that's kind of how you get these movements and things started. And a little bit different than what just Carlos does, where he's simply looking at the ultra processed food, which has a specific definition and criteria, which is called NOVA classification. In culinary medicine, we're also tying that into our your environmental responsibility. So how is it raised? Um, and it turns out that really when we eat things that are good for us, raised in a way that's good for us, produced in a way that's good for us personally, turns out it's the best way for the planet too. So it becomes this really powerful win-win combination. Who doesn't win is big pharma, big soda, big snack, et cetera. Uh, but eventually they'll change their ways if that's if that's what people demand, if that's where the money leads them, they'll find ways to adapt because that's what they always do. So nowadays, you know, in your conversations with whether it's students or patients, what kind of guidance do you give around fats and oils? Do you bring up like, you know, avoid seed oils and vegetable oils and incorporate more saturated fats? Like what, what kind of guidance are you giving these days? Right. So we want to avoid the ultra processed foods. That's the first sort of guidance we give. And you, you touch on a very powerful, big topic, which is the fats. Um, and let's back up for the listeners even more. So what do we mean when we talk about saturated fats, monounsaturated fats and polyunsaturated fats? So saturated fats mean that the carbon tails on a glycerol molecule, which is what a fat is, so a fat has a backbone, and then there are uh, certain molecules that are attached to that backbone. So if we want to have an idea of those, we can simply look at ourselves and say, we have a backbone, we have two arms, two legs. Well, just by pure coincidence, a carbon molecule has four available bonds. And so a carbon molecule, you can imagine as yourself, uh, with your hands and your legs being where you can touch something or touch another person, another carbon molecule. And so if you and I stand next to each other and we touch our left hand and our left foot together, and then there's somebody to the right of me and I touch my right hand and my right foot to them, and we do that in a whole chain of people standing in a straight line, that's what we call a saturated fat. That means that as a person, I have no available appendage that's free. Every bond or every appendage of our molecule is saturated. I have no, no free appendages. Or if you're a carbon molecule, uh, a free bond is what we call it in, in chemistry. So that's what constitutes a saturated fat. We generally recognize them as being solid at room temperature. So animal fats are generally saturated fats. Coconut fat is a saturated fat. For the most part, it's solid at room temperature. Now let's go to a monounsaturated fat. And that what, what that means is that in that line of individuals, who now will start with the saturated fat. And then you and I are, are little carbon molecules in that chain, Jane. And then I'm going to pull my left hand back and you're going to pull your right hand back and we have our hands free and we can wave. That's what's called a monounsaturated fat. We can wave, we can do things. Uh, we can actually move around that carbon molecule, right? Because I can move my hand, you can use yours. That's a monounsaturated fat. So the most common monounsaturated fat people are probably familiar with is olive oil, right? When we talk about fats, they're generally mixtures of different types of fats uh, when we say uh, oils. So when we say that about olive oil, we're pretty talking about oleic acid as the, the con primary constituent of olive oil. And so that's a monounsaturated fat. Now, if we start to have a bunch of people on our line look at Mike and Jane and they say, wow, that looks cool. I got to scratch my head too. And, and they break those bonds along the way. Then we have what's called polyunsaturated fats, meaning that lots of hands and, and feet are free. And as you can imagine, why saturated fats are solid at room temperatures, if we're locked up like this, we can't move very much. We're stuck to whoever's next to us. And so it becomes solid. As we increase the number of unsaturated bonds, all of a sudden that molecule could start to move around a whole lot more and assume all these different configurations. And that's where cis and trans comes in. So you've heard about trans fats being bad, right? So a saturated fat can never be a trans fat 
because it, it can't move. So if a trans fat, for example, and a cis fat have to do with unsaturated bonds, I could turn this way and you could turn the other way. And depending on what that configuration is, we call them in chemistry cis or trans. Obviously, we know we want to avoid a lot of these artificial trans fats because they're so bad for us. But to take it back to your conversation, you can see now a saturated fat can never be a trans fat. So it can never be have those kind of bad health outcomes that are associated with trans fats. Those are only monounsaturated or polyunsaturated fats that can be cis or trans because that applies multiple ways that the molecule can orient in space. That's kind of the, the background primer in saturated fats, monounsaturated fats, like olive oil is the one to kind of keep in your mind. And then the polyunsaturated fats uh, that are generally made from the vegetable oils. And when we talk about how these are produced, uh, saturated fats, if anybody's ever had a steak or hamburger, right? And you cook it and then stuff starts to solidify on your plate. Those are saturated fats. They're generally solid at room temperature, for example, like butter. Uh, monounsaturated fat, we gave a good example, which is primarily olive oil, which is oleic acid. And then we can look at polyunsaturated fats, which is what you were alluding to, which are all these oils that are made from different types of plants. And a lot of the processes that are involved in producing those types of oils uh, from plants, those polyunsaturated vegetable oils, are not very good for us, it turns out. So they're they're highly industrialized processes. So things like hexane extraction. So generally, you know, if you're cooking in your kitchen at home, you don't have jars of hexane laying around to, you know, extract oil from the corn. These are very highly industrialized, very complex, very artificial procedures that are done to make these types of oils. Olive oil, not so much, right? Olive oil goes back uh, hundreds of years, thousands of years. And we can get that by cold crushing olive seeds, olives, uh, and their seeds and then collecting the oil that runs off. So there are ways to collect plant oils that are not industrial. Unfortunately, most of what you're going to pick up in your grocery store shelf when you're looking at things like canola oil, corn oil, uh, vegetable oil, which is just kind of a empty bin where they pour in kind of the cheapest things that they can get and say it's vegetable oil. All those sorts of things are made uh, in that industrial process that, that we just, just described. And I'll stop here because there's something at the other end that happens when you use those oils to cook mm. that doesn't happen to saturated fats. And, and we'll get into that because I think that that was a pretty big bite right there. Yeah, yeah, that. for sure. <laughs> and uh, you hit the nail on the head. I was going to follow up with what happens when you heat them and when you consume them. So you mentioned uh, some of these polyunsaturated fats being canola oil, vegetable oils, soybean oil, and sunflower and safflower oils are also included in that category, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. You have to look and see a couple of things when you're looking at vegetable oils, which is obviously what are the constituents? Is it just a, a mixed tub that says vegetable oil? Is it something in particular, coconut oil, olive oil, whatever it is? Then you want to kind of look at how it is produced as well. Most of these commercial oils that you'll find you know, in our supermarkets for us to purchase and then are used in preparing a lot of the foodstuffs when we go out to eat, these are done through highly industrialized processes. It adds contaminants to the final product, of which a certain percentage, again, uh, just like you know, how many pieces of roach can you have in a jar of peanut butter, there's a certain percentage of those things that are allowed in the product, even if it says you know, 100% canola oil there will still be things in there. Understand one of the, the reasons I went through all that basic chemistry is to understand that when you heat vegetable oils, right? Something that is facing this way, and let's say this is what we would call a cis configuration, can turn around and become facing this way, which becomes a trans fat. So my point is that whenever we heat vegetable oils, when we cook with vegetable oils at home, we are creating trans fats. Now, when you look at a bag of potato chips and it says zero trans fats, the first thing I want you to do is look and see what the serving size is. It's like half a potato chip. And the reason is because in that serving of half a potato chip, there is less than 0.5 milligrams of trans fatty acids. 
So therefore, based on that serving size, legally, they can put on that package that there are zero trans fats, but it's per serving size. When you sit down and you eat the bag of chips, because we know you can't just have one, you are actually consuming a whole lot of trans fats. So something most people aren't aware of is one, anytime you cook in high temperature vegetable oil, or even if you use that vegetable oil at home, you are creating trans fats that you will eat. How much of them will depend on obviously how much of that generally fried food or deep fried food uh, that you're eating. So this kind of goes back to, you know, what's on that label, what it says, and also what it doesn't say, kind of how they hide those things. I also heard that the the guidance for the nutrition label is that essentially the number you can write for the calories can be 20% lower than the actual calorie count. Right, because they're, they're, they're all within a, a variance, okay. right? So yeah, so things swing wildly. And that, that actually has to do with natural products as well, because if we're using apples, say we're making apple juice, right? The actual contents will vary. The sugars will depend on the apple, the season, the mm. variety, et cetera. So there's a, nat- a natural variance in all nutrition labels. And, and that goes with natural wholesome foods as well, because they vary greatly to where they were grown, how they were raised, the soil that they were in, how much sun they got. So there's a natural variance within, within our foodstuffs. So I, I always you tell people to use those nutrition labels really kind of like if you're going to shop for a car and you get, you know, those miles per gallon, it kind of gives you a rough idea but right, it's going to depend on a lot of things and how you use your vehicle as well. So mm-hmm. those sorts of things are not hard and fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just like with our bodies, each of our metabolism is different too. It depends, you know, what you're doing with those calories, right? So you kind of yep. touched on a couple of our listener questions. So from Kat, she's asking, what kinds of oil are best for your health and how do they change when they're heated? And then I want to link in another question from Andrew, which is what is the best high temperature oil for cooking? Okay, so great questions, Kat and Andrew. So I will uh, start with Kat's question. What I generally like to stay away from and what I, what I don't personally use are the, the oils that have a lot of GMOs in them. Uh, they're grown with a lot of chemicals, right? And that's the, the basis of a GMO is that it's resistant to certain types of herbicides and pesticides, et cetera, which means that those crops are loaded with it. So I do not use canola oil because over 90% of the canola oil in the U.S. and Canada is GMO. Uh, Canola oil is also known as rapeseed. Uh, There are a few organic manufacturers. So you could, you know, for example, if you wanted to really use it, you seek those out. But the general ones you're going to find at the everyday grocery store, uh, they've really been exposed to a lot of pesticides. And so I want to stay away from those. I generally don't like the ones that are industrially extracted. So brands that are using that hexane extraction, et cetera. Uh, How do we know whether that is or not? Well, for example, if you look at olive oil and you see, you know, cold pressed extraction method, for example, they're not heating that to high temperatures, uh, stone pressing, you know, et cetera. So that's one thing that I look for, you know, in my oils. I'd say I generally use olive oil for probably 75% of what I, I use. I really love olive oil. You can get a really good you know, quality. It's easy to find those, those brands that are not sort of industrialized, but they're you know, cold pressed, extra virgin, you know, first pressing, you know, olive oil sort of stuff. Uh, having said that, olive oil can be very expensive and that brand can be very expensive. So you can look for things that just don't, that are produced that way, but just don't say extra virgin, meaning it's the first press. So they're doing it the same way, but it's a second or third press of those olives. So it's not extra virgin, but those are great, you know, to heat things up in a pan. And in fact, uh, that's what I do because I mean, food's like super expensive. So I save that cold pressed extra virgin olive oil for things where I'm going to drizzle it on uh, after I finished cooking it, you know, dressings, maybe an aioli. Uh, that sort of stuff. I don't really cook with that. By the way, olive oil and vegetable oils, right? They're fats. So they're light sensitive. Mm -hmm. So if you keep them out on your counter and you keep them in a clear container, 
more light goes through them, particularly if you get sunlight into your kitchen, uh, which we do, because it's like the only way not to freeze in Montana in the winter. So we open all our windows and get as much sunlight, as passive solar as we can. So uh, keep them in color jars because it uh, decreases the amount of uh, light pre penetration. Uh, keep them out of the sunlight, direct sunlight if, if you can, because oils have a have a drop dead date because their fats, they will spoil, uh, they will oxidize. And that's that's what happens when we keep them in, in sunlight. So just a little storage tip. Uh, I keep all my oils in very dark areas in my cupboard. And then I just keep a little jar of what I use when I cook out of the sunlight on my cooking container in my kitchen. And it's a way to increase the, the lifespan of things like extra virgin olive oil, which can be quite expensive. Now, when we're looking at fats, uh, particularly plant oils, we want to look at something called a smoke point. And you want to see what that smoke point is. That's the point at which when you're looking in a pan, smoke starts to come off. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's a very self-descriptive uh, sort of thing. Uh, and you want to look what that temperature is. And if you'll notice when you look at what the smoke point of olive oil is, you'll find it's not very high in terms of our cooking. It's, uh, I think, about 340 degrees Fahrenheit or so. So if I'm going to, you know, saute something, a little low temperature sort of things, if, for example, um, I'm scrambling eggs, I'll probably put a little olive oil in the pan. I don't need a very high temperature. If you're looking to cook something to get a crispy, crunchy, being more of our kind of deep frying temperatures, we're talking upwards of around you know, four, 380 degrees, close to 400 degrees. When you heat olive oil to that, you're going to start decomposing. You're going to start to introduce the formation of compounds. Just so people know, I actually am a chemistry major from college. So this is, <laughs> this actually, this, yeah, this, this actually all, all kinds of but yeah, so uh, it starts to really form uh, a variety of compounds we'll get into in, in just in just a minute. So you don't want to really take an oil, any kind of plant-based oil, much above what we call a smoke point. When we look at saturated animal fats, they have very high smoke points. You can heat them to a very high temperature and they are very stable. Things that people used to cook with, lard, tallow, schmaltz, so schmaltz is chicken fat, Lard is pig fat, tallow is beef, also used to describe sheep fat as well. They're solid at room temperature. They're very stable when you cook with them and you deep fry things and heat them to high temperatures. When you do that with certain kinds of vegetable oils, they're not. They're not stable. And because of those polyunsaturated bonds can create new types of compounds, new types of fats. Anytime you heat vegetable oils, because by definition, they're not saturated fats, with the exception of coconut oil. And for the most part, you will generate trans fats. So when you take that jar of Crisco or peanut oil, whatever it is, and you heat it up to deep fry something or fry some food, you are making and generating trans fatty acids in, in your pan or in your pot. So what I'm hearing is generally olive oil is a safe choice for like overall consumption. And if you're cooking, you know, pan frying something up to its smoke point, it's safe to use. And then if you're using really high temperature, um, say deep frying, saturated fats like animal fats are generally good to use. Yeah, a good choice. And you can use certain types of plant oils have very high smoke points like avocado oil. Mm. So if you can get avocado oil, right, which is made by crushing the avocado. Many years ago, as physicians, we told people not to eat avocados mm. because they had lots of saturated fat. And we told them they were high in cholesterol. They actually weren't high in cholesterol they were high in something that's related to cholesterol called beta-acetosterol, um, say that five times fast, <laughs> which was so like cholesterol that it showed up when they tested for cholesterol. It's actually not cholesterol. It's just kind of a cousin, a plant cousin of cholesterol. Mm -hmm. uh, but you could get like an avocado oil. Um, you want to look for something that has a high, what we just talked about, smoke point meaning that it will be stable and you're not generating those trans fatty acids and other compounds, which we call ages or advanced glycolation end products, which we'll get to in a little bit. So something like avocado oil, grapeseed oil is another one, which are stable at very high temperatures. Uh, the smoke point of those, I believe avocado and maybe grapeseed as well, is over 400 degrees mm -hmm. Fahrenheit. 
That's perfect because it answers Andrew's question too, which was the what are the best high temperature oils for cooking? So boom, two in one. I recently saw there's this new company that's creating a new type of oil, cultured oil. So it's a company called Zero Acre Farms. So my understanding is it's a fermented product that they start with some kind of mother and then they feed it with sugar and it turns into this oil, this colorless, tasteless, almost like canola oil, but it's not a seed oil and it has a very high smoke point. I haven't tried it myself. It looks really intriguing and promising. I'm always a little bit skeptical of these new foods, but the way they frame it is like, you know, it's just like when people discovered yogurt or kefir, it's just a new type of fermentation. Well, what I would look for first is to see if the organism that is fermenting it is genetically modified. Hmm. So for example, one of the plant-based meats uses a genetically modified yeast in the production of their, their plant-based meat product. We don't know what the consequences of that protein are on our bodies because hmm. it's a genetically modified organism producing a new type of protein that human beings haven't eaten before. So that would be my only caveat so the process may sound really good because obviously that's where they're going to advertise. My question would be if it is indeed a, a yeast or some organism that is then producing this oil, is that something that we've consumed before as human beings or is this a proprietary genetically modified organism like the yeast that they use in one of the plant-based meat preparations that is now producing this type of oil, which may be colorless, tasteless, et cetera but we've never eaten before. Mm -hmm. So uh, to, to touch uh, on that as a segue, some of these plant-based oils, when we heat them to temperatures, and you mentioned uh, Nina's book, and, and she referenced this study in her book as well, that it produces over 50 different cis types of fats that humans haven't eaten before. Mm -hmm. It's not never mentioned in conversation because the government hasn't brought it up and they don't really think it's that important. But when you do that, when you cook in this vegetable oil and you heat it up, right, you're heating. So you're disrupting molecules. Molecules break at their weakest bonds. Or our hands are free to grab onto, you know, a hydroxyl group, which is an oxygen and a hydrogen and form different kind of compounds and different mm -hmm. kinds of fats. And so that's a very important consideration because, again, there's over 50 new cis molecules that are generated when we heat those plant-based oils to say nothing of all the trans types of fats we're generating, most of which we have no idea, absolutely no idea what their effect is on the human body. Especially if you think now, wow, somebody's using and eating deep fried food every day. And because of the problems with animal fats, the, the outrage against saturated fats way back in the 70s and 80s, which you're too young to remember, uh, <laughs> a lot of the fast food restaurants had to switch one of the reasons people said McDonald's fries were the best of everybody else's is that they originally used beef tallow, which is a mm -hmm. saturated beef fat to cook their French fries in because um, it was cheap, right? They were buying it where they were getting the hamburgers. Because of the concern over cholesterol levels and saturated fat, McDonald's switched to polyunsaturated oils to, to cook their fries in. When some of these things started coming out about polyunsaturated fats and what happens when you heat them to high temperatures, McDonald's said, well, Listen, you could just stop right there because if you tell us we can't use saturated fat and now you're telling us we can't use polyunsaturated fat, exactly how the hell are we supposed to cook our fries? Uh, as we mentioned, the monounsaturated fat is olive oil, which you can't heat to a high temperature. It just degrades. So all of a sudden, you know, with lobbies like McDonald's and other all these other fast food food producers who use deep frying, you know, if we went down that road, we're leaving with them with no way to serve us deep fried food. And you're not going to do that to Americans, right? That's just un-American to not have deep fried food. Yeah, right. For better or for worse. So, but, for better or worse. But right? based on the evidence, if they were to go back to the beef tallow, that's actually not an issue health-wise, right? Right. So I think we made like little spiced pork burritos from scratch. You know, everything was from scratch. And so when I was cooking that, I actually cooked the pork. I trimmed off and saved uh, the pork fat from, you know, some pork spare ribs. And, and I actually cook the pork in the pork fat in lard. Mm. One, it's incredibly flavorful, makes it crispy, but I know it's incredibly stable. 
it's also a great sustainability point because I'm not wasting anything. So I'm trimming the, the pork off our pork chops and we get ours, which are, are raised very naturally. Just to digress a moment, when you look at heritage breeds of animal, like our pork, which is mangalista type pork, animals that are raised uh, heritage breed very naturally, they have very little fat. They're like duck. They have very little fat in the meat, uh, what we call intramuscular fat. They have a lot of fat on the outside, like under the skin. And that makes sense for an animal that has to live in the wild. It wants to keep warm. So underneath the skin, you have a layer of fat, which helps insulate. When I'm working with those cuts, I'll trim that fat off because I only want about a quarter inch around there. I don't need all that fat, but I save that lard. And just like they did a couple hundred years ago, then I can actually cook my pork in the, in the lard. It's incredibly cost effective. So it's saving me money. I'm not paying you know, $25 for oil to cook stuff in. It's great for the environment because we're not wasting anything. Also adds incredible flavor to the food I'm cooking in. Uh, all the great taquerias that you go to down in, in Mexico that I haven't been to in years, but they're all cooking their meat in, in, in lard, mm. right? And because that's, mm. as a peasant, you know, if you go to poor areas, you don't waste anything. Oils and fats, when you dispose of them, uh, can be an issue, people disposing of, of vegetable fats. So we're kind of recycling. I don't use that oil. I'll drain it off, use it several times before it becomes bad. We've been saving lard as well for cooking. Um, we buy this great kielbasa that's spiced and it's pretty fatty when you cook it down. And so I'll just pour that into a jar and it solidifies. And the best part is like it still has those spices. So when I use it to cook my vegetable stir fries, it like has that lardy flavor, but also a little bit of the spices. It's perfect. And, and what you're doing, that's the way people cook and prepare their meals for most of human history. That's why traditionally, as we look at sort of the food history of things, you'll find that people didn't really use vegetable oils. One, because you couldn't produce them. The way that they're produced is, you know, hexane extraction, high temperatures, solvents, so on and so forth, that again, make them an ultra processed food by definition because of the way that they're produced, right? It's not something you and I are doing in our home kitchen, but getting these animal fats, well, that was a natural way to be economical, you know, 2000 years ago. And what's very interesting is if you actually look at the history of ancient Greece, where we think they used tons of olive oil, they didn't really, it, it wasn't really considered, that's sort of a modern myth. If you look, you know, oh, the ancient Greeks, you know, put uh, olive oil in anything, anything. When you look at the historical record, that's not true. It's really a lot of good advertising by Greece, uh, you know, in the olive oil industry. Having said that, I, I use a ton of it. I love it. I love the flavor. But historically, uh, in fact, in ancient Greece, right, lard was what they would have used to cook in most of the time. Pork was the, the animal that was most consumed in ancient Greece. For anybody who wants to read more about it, check out Ancient Eats by me uh, <laughs> on Amazon. We go into that in a very fun way. And so uh, things like olive oil were expensive because you had to crush and press. And so it was used mostly for illumination because it was very clean burning, right? And anyone who's cooked lard knows that it smells, it can be smoky. When you burn olive oil, as in an olive oil lamp, it burns much cleaner. Uh, you get the heat, you get the light, you don't get sort of the stench and the smoke necessary that you get from animal fats. But what they cooked in most of the time was actually lard from pork. So what you're describing is really going back to the roots of how people have cooked and eaten and prepared food for most of human history. Vegetable oils are a very new phenomenon, not much more than a half century old. They came about because of the cholesterol sort of scare that I'll say that, that came about in the, in the 70s. And when people said, oh, saturated fat is bad, raises cholesterol, therefore we need other oils for your listeners out there, will eating more saturated fat raise your cholesterol? The answer is yes. The caveat is that there are two types of cholesterol that we worry about, when we, specifically when we speak of your LDL or low-density li lipoprotein. There's a type A and a type B. So you can think of them as beach balls and ping pong balls. Type B is what we call small, dense LDL. And so that, that is like a ping pong ball. Or you can have what's called type A or large type LDL molecule, which is like a beach ball. When we measure your cholesterol and your cholesterol comes back and it says, let's say it's 200 just to round off, right? That's we're measuring how much cholesterol or sort of how much plastic is in that sample that we took. 
And now you can imagine from a pound of plastic, I can make maybe 10 beach balls or I can make 100,000 ping pong balls mm. because all we're measuring is the quantity of that, that type of LDL that's in there. When we fractionate it, we can then determine, did this come from a ping pong ball or did it come from a beach ball? It turns out beach balls are good. So if you have lots of beach balls, uh, because they're, they're large molecules, that is not associated with the risk of, of disease from increased cholesterol, that small dense type or the ping pong balls, what we call LDLR. When people have diabetes, for example, one of the things that happens is they get what we, we call uh, cardiology dyslipidemia, meaning there's a disproportionate shift from these beach balls to ping pong balls. And the other way to think of, of these ping pong balls or beach balls is think of them as unruly teenagers. When you have an LDL of 200, you may have 20 beach balls that you can make out of that. Well, that's 20 unruly teenagers left unsupervised in your house over the weekend. <laughs> Not too bad. If you then say from a LDL of 200, we can make 200 ping pong balls. Put those same unruly teenagers in your house for the weekend and say they number 200, you will come back to, uh, and that actually is a known risk factor for mass destruction, mm -hmm. domestic mass destruction, right? <laughs> so um, your house is going to be trash. Yep. And so that's, that's the difference. I know that's uh, getting into the weeds a little bit, but it's very important because when we looked at those original studies, we never looked at what we call subfractionating the LDL cholesterol. Is it type A or type B? And I would never put somebody on a cholesterol-lowering drug because that increases your risk of diabetes, depending on the study, up to about 30%, which is very significant, without knowing what type of LDL they had. Is this an increase of type A, which doesn't seem to be associated with any kind of inflammation and is not something to worry about? Or is it this type B, which, gosh darn, I'm pretty concerned about that, and, and we need to put you on this medication because you uh, demonstrated you know, a high risk profile. And too many teenagers um, so, again, in the house. You have too many teenagers in, in the house <laughs> that is your the temple that is your body. <laughs> <laughs> I love that analogy so much. And I'm glad you dug into the weeds. And this also hits well, on a listener question from Curtis, which was, what is the latest science on cholesterol? How are they digested? And what do they do in the body? And I hadn't heard about the two different types of LDL. But what I had heard of was LDL versus HDL, and HDL being the good type of cholesterol that you do want to eat, those coming mainly from saturated fats. Is that correct? Well, uh, HDL and LDL. So one stands for what we call high density lipoproteins. And then LDL is what we stand for low density lipoproteins. And there's actually another category that we don't talk about a lot, which is called VLDL or very low density lipoproteins. So I, I want to unpack that for just a minute. So you heard me use the, the term lipoproteins uh, in describing all three of those, HDL, LDL, VLDL. So lipoprotein is exactly what it describes. It's a molecule made of fat, lipo, which we generally refer to as having some of that cholesterol component, and protein, which everybody knows, hey, I want to eat lots of protein. You cannot transport fat in your blood and get it from one place to another because anyone who's tried to make olive oil dressing where you have vinegar, which is mostly water, and you add your olive oil to it, see it separate right out. Okay? And that's what would happen if you just tried to move fat molecules in your blood, which is mostly water. So nature, being ever clever, said, well, we're going to make these little messenger molecules. And so we're going to package the fats with uh, the proteins. And that way we can get them around our body where we need them from point A to point B. And they're not going to separate out in our blood. And so these lipoprotein molecules are able to carry those fats around our body from different places. So uh, to again, again, go back to our food an analogy, if we instead of just having that, that oil and vinegar separate, but we add an egg yolk and we whip that up and then we add a little bit of our oil in there, and then we can add a little bit of water, we have mayonnaise, right? A mayonnaise is what we call an emulsion. So it's able to hold both those potentially protein molecules and those water molecules on those fat molecules together. And it can hold them together as kind of one big happy family. And that's what a lipoprotein does. 
So it's, it's the way your body is able to package fats, package those cholesterol molecules as well, so we can move them about to where we need them in our body. For example, our brain is mostly fat. The linings of, that protect and insulate all the connections between all the billions of nerve cells in our body, those are made of fat, right? Fat's a good insulator. Ask any walrus or seal, they'll tell you. Uh, so our bodies have these lipoproteins uh, to carry them, and they are known as high-density lipoproteins, and for conversation, low-density lipoproteins, or what you just described as LDLs. LDLs come in two flavors that we just talked about. Just again, as an aside, one of the problems that people have in diabetes, because it's an inflammatory disease, is that they preferentially, their body is shifted to make lots of that type B or very dense lipoprotein. So that type of protein is, is what is associated with inflammation, atherosclerosis, heart disease, peripheral vascular disease is having that one particular type. If we think of the low density lipoproteins as either beach balls or ping pong balls, we could also think of them as something has to move them. So we talked about how to get them around our body. Well, you could think of HDL as delivery vans. They're going to pack up either beach balls or ping pong balls, crates of them, put them in the back of the van or the truck, and then drive them to different locations. Uh, one of the places, for example, they take them is to the liver. So generally, we like to have lots of HDL molecules because we like to have lots of transport trucks to pick these up from places we don't want them and move them where they need to be or to process them. So that's kind of an overview of you know how to think about that. Having said that, there are types of HDL that are inflammatory that you don't want to have. So for the educated readers out there, I know I'm oversimplifying it, but you know, I'm just trying to keep it on a, on a simple analogy. And so HDL doesn't let beach balls and ping pong balls accumulate in the street and artery. Well, it's not going to let that garbage accumulate. It's going to pick it up and move it where it needs to be. Uh, when that garbage starts to accumulate, we call those plaques. Um, and they start to cause blockages. So this HDL is really good at moving those things around. That's why we really like to have HDL numbers generally that are very high. And in fact, we consider those cardioprotective. You get a cholesterol and you say, oh my God, my cholesterol is so high. Well, if it turns out that it's very high because you have a very high HDL, which by the way, is one of the things that women who are not in, in menopause have, it's one of the things that estrogen does is it raises that HDL level, which is why generally women don't have and aren't at risk for heart attacks the way men are until, you know, a decade later, until after menopause, when they lose those estrogen levels. Those HDL levels are what we call cardioprotective. How do we raise those HDL levels? So one reason that we I just mentioned is we're a woman and we're not in menopause. We're going through our normal menstrual cycles and our natural levels of estrogen keep those HDL levels up. Genetics are another thing. So some people are born uh, with having higher genetic levels. Uh, exercise is one of the few things that we know that can raise those HDL levels. We know that smoking, for example, will lower them will lower our HDL levels. Uh, but there's not a lot of ways that we know from a medical perspective, other than exercise, that we can increase the HDL levels that we're born with. I will give you a personal antidote. When I was in my very young years, like going to high school, I ate the typical American teenager diet, which was like 99% driving after school to go get fast food, you know, with my buddies and, you know, was like sports year round, you know, tearing up all my joints. But my um, HDL was horrible. I mean, my parents thought I had a genetic anomaly because it was like, you know, really low. And my LDL level was not not so good. Back then, we didn't know about fractionating LDL. So actually, when I was in high school, my parents put me on the Pritikin diet, which I couldn't stand. And it did change my cholesterol numbers. But basically, if it didn't taste like cardboard, you had to spit it out. That, that, that was the Pritikin diet in a nutshell. It was one of the most miserable months I've ever experienced. Absolutely horrible. And um, I just said, well, you know, maybe I'm just one of these people who genetically has a low... HDL on, I've really got to watch it for the rest of my life. And I can tell you, I exercise a heck of a lot less than I did in high school. My HDL numbers are like fantastic now. Mm. And the only difference that I can see is that I don't eat a lot of ultra processed food next to none. 
except, you know, if I'm out and celebrating with people, which are rare days throughout the year. And, and I say that anecdotally because there's no data. There's not a study I can point to you. I'm just sharing my own personal experience here. So I want to couch that for all the listeners. And I would love to see a study on that down the road. I find that fascinating because it's, it was really just getting rid of the ultra processed food that all of a sudden my HDL went up through, through the roof. So having said that, those are what I know of ways to positively impact our HDL. The way that we get our baseline HDL is pretty much determined genetically. We used to think that eating saturated fat was bad because when you eat saturated fat, your LDL does go up. Unfortunately, after we rang the fire alarm about that, the research came out that when we eat saturated fat, like animal fats, so the lard, the tallow, et cetera, the type of LDL that goes up is the good kind. We make more beach balls, mm. which is not associated with the risk of cardiovascular disease that the pro-inflammatory or the ping pong ball uh, size molecules are. Again, one of those things, everybody reads the headline, nobody need, reads the retraction a month later on the back of the newspaper page, if anybody reads newspapers anymore. And that is one of the reasons that dietary cholesterol uh, was taken off the list of things that were under guidelines back in, I believe, 2016, maybe 2017. If you look, they changed the, the saturated fat guidelines, and they also got rid of the cholesterol guidelines mm -hmm. because it turns out that if you skimp on eating dietary cholesterol, because it is part of almost every single cell in your body needs cholesterol because it forms part of the, the cell membrane lining, as I told you, it's used in insulating the nerve pathways. The nerve cell connections in our brain is lined with cholesterol. It's a great insulator in terms of phosphatidylcholine and so on and so forth. So every cell in your body has to have it. And if you don't get enough through your diet, your liver just switches on its own mechanism to make more cholesterol. If you end up getting a lot in your diet, your liver tends to ratchet down how much you need to produce. But it's so important a molecule, even though most people don't realize this because it's been so vilified, that if you think about like how we're wired by nature, cholesterol is so important that if you don't eat enough, your own internal machinery is going to turn on to start producing it. Hmm. That's how important cholesterol is. Where it goes awry is when cholesterol becomes oxidized. Normal cholesterol isn't found in plaques, okay? A, a normal cholesterol is not part of an atherosclerotic plaque in your heart or in your artery or anywhere. It has to become oxidized first, which is a whole separate show that we can do. But so something bad has to happen to that cholesterol for it to start, you know, this process. This is all just so fascinating. So I think you touched on Annabella's question, which I'm chuckling to myself because she says, is butter good for you? And what about the animal fat that you eat on a juicy piece of pork? And we kind of touched on that. That's part of saturated fats. Generally, you know, high smoke points, generally good for you. Just for Annabelle real quick, I only use real butter, real uh, natural organic butter. I don't use margarines at all. I did uh, when I didn't know better. And it turns out that when I used them, they were all made with trans fatty acids. So I probably irreparably damaged all the linings of my arteries without knowing it, you know, at the time. Uh, but I'm doing the best I can now eating real butter. Just, you know, get a good brain. I love Kerrygold. Great butter. Me too. <laughs> yeah. From a culinary medicine point of view, how much fat should we be eating? And I want to preface this by saying like, obviously there's like a minimum threshold of we need some amount of fat in our diets, but is there a thing as too much fat? And I say that because one, these carnivore slash animal based diets are becoming pretty popular. There's some high profile people like carnivore MD, even Joe Rogan and Michaela Peterson are kind of touting these animal based diets, which are really high fat and high protein, which is generally good. But is that an issue? And also, you probably heard about this study where the so Stevenson, he's an anthropologist, he went and lived with the Inui for a year and ate seal and, and whatnot, and then came back. And for a year, he only ate meat and fat. And he was totally fine um, based on mm -hmm. all indicators. So, I mean, clearly there are people who are thriving on like a very high fat diet and eating mainly animal products. Do you see any concerns with that? So the, the first and maybe the only caveat I put with that is when you take that approach, the sourcing is critical. 
right? So, and I don't want somebody to walk away from this saying, hey, the carnivore diet is great. So I'm going to go through the fast food drive-thru every day and just get the burgers without the bun and think that that, you know, is okay. Because it's not. For example, the study you're referencing where the guy went and lived with the Inuit, uh, you know, for a year and then came back. He ate what today we call, you know, very clean meat. So it wasn't processed meat. It wasn't things with lots of additives to it. It wasn't ultra processed food. One of the great things about being a human being that we can thank our ancestors for is, um, you know, those buggers must have eaten just about anything. So to survive, they were, you know, eating plants, they're digging up roots, they're, you know, chomping on bugs, uh, they're hunting mastodons, they're, you know, grilling ribs, uh, you know, whatever these guys could get their hands on, they ate and they processed. And so they gave us a wonderfully powerful digestive system and a method of extraction uh, that we can respond to what we eat in a very, you know, positive way to sustain our own life. You know, my take in, in terms of, you know, our culinary medicine pr- approach is eat what you like. If you want to eat all meat, eat all meat. Uh, you want to eat, be a vegetarian, eat, eat all vegetarian food. That's sort of the beauty of culinary medicine. We don't really care. Whatever works for you, because people have different genetics as well. For example, you know, I love sushi and I'll get sushi with a nori wrap. And yes, I'm eating a lot of the things that, that are good for me when I get good, you know, uh, very well prepared, very well sourced sushi. However, I don't have the gene that anyone who has Japanese descent does where uh, one of the compounds in seaweed will turn on one of their anti-cancer genes and they'll start producing, you know, some things. Um, So sushi, good for human beings. Yeah, when it's sourced well, I eat it, I enjoy it, I get benefit for it. I don't have the genetics of people who have evolved eating that for millennia now have where it turns on one of their, you know, cancer protective genes. So all of us will respond to foods differently based on our genetics. We will also respond differently, you know, based on our emotional response, which is tied to the foods we eat uh, in a very inseparable way, just based on, you know, how we grew up and the, the emotional experiences Uh, will impact our overall health. In culinary medicine, we appreciate that everyone is unique and I want people to eat foods that make them happy. Eating all meat, make happy, go for it. Eating all plants, make happy, go for it. It's the sourcing to me that is that critical variable. So someone who sources, you know, you live with the Inuit, you're hunting the seal, you know, you're hunting the walrus, you're getting those fish, et cetera, and you're pretty much living on an Inuit diet uh, and not eating, you know, any plants except for a few salmon berries that you get for like three days, you know, in the Arctic tundra, that's fine. If that's what you love, that, that that's fine. And you will, as this, the studies you reference show, be very healthy. Compare that to, you know, vegan friends of mine who I constantly jump on because they're eating ultra processed stuff that's out of these, you know, bars. Hey, I'm with the Inuit people, you know, every day. Conversely, somebody's going through the drive-thru every day compared to somebody who's sourcing, you know, organic vegetables, and that's all they're eating every day. I'm with the, the latter on that as well. So to me, eat what you like, eat what makes you happy. Um, just source the heck out of it to make sure that you're not getting the ultra-processed version of it. I love that. We're aligned. This is the the message we preach all the time on this show is, you know, look at where you're sourcing your food. One final question, and this is personal to Sriya who's asking this, and this is related to allergies. So she asks, why is it that I'm allergic to sesame seeds and peanuts, but I'm not allergic to the sesame oil or peanut oil? And that probably has to do with the processing. Uh, It could be the process. It, It could also be that she is allergic to a particular compound that is not found when the oils are extracted. So I would suspect that she is probably allergic to one of the compounds. Uh, Just as an aside for people who are allergic to peanuts, a lot of times they're actually not allergic to anything in the peanut, but it's the aflatoxin, which is produced by something that feeds on the, I believe it might might be a fungi, don't quote me on that, that actually feeds on the peanuts where they're in storage and then produces that toxin in very minute amounts that doesn't bother most people, but some people are allergic to the fungal toxin that can be produced by that. And it's actually the aflatoxin that they're allergic to, not the, the peanut per se, 
And again, if that was in her case, what she was allergic to that may be put on the wayside when they're actually making the peanut oil. Does that have to do with the way that peanuts are grown? Like say if she got organic peanuts, would that fungus still be there? It has to do with the way they're stored. Uh, So when they sit, uh, when they're taken out of the ground and then they sit, you know, like anything else, uh, mold and fungi are everywhere. Mm. And while they're in those warehouses, nature is still at work, uh, even at those points. So that's why, right, if you were to look at a jar of peanut butter, organic, commercial, doesn't matter. And you look at what's allowed, there'll be a certain amount of roach particles, a certain amount of mouse poop, uh, a rodent poop that's allowed, you know, per jar you know, you can't be free of those contaminants uh, that are in there. It's kind of a gross thing that most people don't realize or don't really want to talk about, but it is important to realize because that is part of, you know, how it gets to us. So that's very different than you going out and buying organic peanuts and then taking them home and making your own peanut butter. Wow. Okay. Something I did not know. (laughs) I don't know if I wanted to know that, but... Sometimes ignorance is bliss. And now I don't know if I'll look at peanut butter jar the same again. <laughs> you know, it's the good thing is it's, it's all organic. So, right. <laughs> uh, but the other good thing, you know, if you have a juicer or food processor, a lot of times you can make your own and you can actually make, if you make the peanut butter, the peanut oil and natural peanut butter are just separated off at the top. And then you've actually got your own peanut oil as well. Mm. Oh, smart. You and I are going to be ready for the apocalypse when it comes. I'm telling you, Jane. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) At least with the food stores, with the fighting zombies. I'm not sure. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sticking around and for answering all of our questions. Thanks, Mike. Yes. Keep those questions coming in, guys. They're great. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember to nourish your body, and I'll talk to you next time.